<laughs> um, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in re and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You, fool you foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly care, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Great. Thank you, Don. What a radio voice. <laughs> Wonderful. Please be seated. Some time ago, I picked up a, got a book that's entitled The Twelve Steps for the Recovering Pharisee. Like me is in the title. Uh, Twelve Steps for the Recovering Pharisee, like me, <laughs> written by John Fisher. Uh, he assumes that many of us Christians are still prone to Pharisaism to a certain extent, and uh, I would suggest he's probably right about that. In this uh, series that I'm doing, entitled Surprised by Grace, it seems that so often in the Gospels it is the Pharisees, as well as other leaders within Judaism, but maybe especially the Pharisees, that resisted Jesus and both his posture and his practice of grace. Well, here in the passage we have just read, we have an extended section where Jesus addresses them very directly, and it's like he's unpacking uh, the many uh, shortcomings within their faith system. Uh, many places there, he says, woe to you, woe to you. <laughs> many different things. So over a period of two or three weeks, I want us to uh, look at the kinds of things that uh, they are doing that are a contrast to the way of grace that Jesus taught. Uh, but who were they? They were very popular. They were a party of the middle class. They had the respect of the people. Their major, really, was separation. Separating themselves from both practices and people that they regarded as sinful or unclean. And they spelled out very precise rules for staying clean. Uh, never enter the home of a Gentile. Never eat with sinners. 
Perform no work on the Sabbath. Watch, wash your hands seven times before eating. Now, with all of that, we're apt to get the impression uh, that they were all bad and that there was no point of agreement between Jesus and them, but that's not actually true. Jesus actually shared many of their values. Unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. He attended the synagogue, participated in the Jewish religious feasts and the worship, which they also did. They believed passionately in the Messiah, but they were hesitant to follow someone too quickly for good reasons. They were orderly people. They produced good citizens. Many of them did become Christ followers after his death and resurrection. They had detailed traditions called the Halakha that had been handed down by previous teachers and was considered binding by the scribes and the Pharisees. But these traditions often missed the true intent of the law. And that would seem to be almost the, the point, the bridge, uh, the focal point, why there was so much disagreement between what Jesus was teaching and what they were practicing. Well, here, as we said, we have an extended passage where Jesus is unpacking uh, so much of what they stand for. And uh, I've summarized the disagreement into five objections that he raises about their faith system. And uh, I've chosen to call them under, uh, you know, call them these terms. And I'll talk about them under these terms. There's the wrong bullseye. You know what a bullseye is. It's what we aim at. Well, they were aiming at the wrong thing. Uh, missing the main. Keeping up appearances. Jumping through hoops. They were asking people to do the impossible. And they were guilty of shooting the messenger. So today we're going to look at the first two. The wrong bullseye. And then missing the main. In uh, the section here, Jesus is the guest of a Pharisee. The host notices that he doesn't bother to wash his hands before eating. Now, I would think that uh, washing your hands before eating is a good thing. Certainly, we try to teach our children that. But uh, this wasn't about hygiene, but it was about ceremonial purity. Before eating anything, scrupulous Jews had water poured over their hands to remove the defilement contracted uh, by their contact with a sinful world. Uh, even the quantity of water and the manner of washing was prescribed in minutia in the Mishnah. And so, of course, the Pharisee was surprised when Jesus, a, a religious leader, uh, didn't conform to this accepted practice. Surprised that he didn't wash his hands. But here in verse 39 and 40, he, Jesus challenges the man's presuppositions. He says, now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside 
you are full of greed and wickedness. He begins with the metaphor of, of washing dishes, but he doesn't, he doesn't stay with that. He says, you wash the outside of the cup. And of course, when it came to literal washing, of course, they, they cleaned the whole cup. But Jesus just uses that as an illustration. It's like he's saying, the way you guys are carrying on, it's as if you just wash the outside of the cup, but you don't even bother with the inside. And he says, you're, you're, you know, but God is interested in the whole person. He made the inside, he made the outside, and so he, he's concerned about the whole person. But your concern is about the outside. Wrong bullseye. Because the real issue is the inner person. The real issue is the heart. And we see this spelled out uh, more clearly in Mark 7, where Jesus says that to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person, but a person, but it isn't what, it's not what goes in to the person that defiles him but it's what comes out of the person. And then these verses, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and follow. All of these evils come from inside and make the man unclean. These evils expressed outwardly come from within the heart. Wrong bullseye. You're focusing on the outward. But the real issue is the inward. And this would mean that you can be very meticulous and exact about doing all the rituals and the ceremonies and even obeying the commandments outwardly and yet be unclean. These outward, sinful behaviors have their source in the sinful heart. But the Pharisees were preoccupied with externals. And then Jesus gets very specific. Verse, uh, the last part of verse 39, he says, You foolish people, uh, no, uh, yeah, 39. Inside, he says, you are full of greed and wickedness gets very specific, full of greed. Uh, greed. Someone has expressed that greed is a fat demon with a small mouth. And whatever you feed it, it's never enough. I think that's true. <laughs> Good way of describing it. A demon with a small mouth and whatever you feed it, it is never enough. And consistent with that, Luke 16:14 says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. These people can, you know, concerned about the outside, but inside, greed, concerned lovers of money. They could keep all the rules and the rituals. They could wash the outside of the cup and still be full of greed and other sins. And so all of these ceremonial things, legalistic routines, the washing regulations, their Sabbath regulations, their feast regulations, their refusing to associate with sinners, did not make them less greedy. Will not, did not make the heart better. 
But there is something that can be done. There is something outward that will make a difference. He says in verse 41, But now as for what is inside, do something on the outside. Be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. I think that's interesting. There's something on the outside that affects the inside. He's saying if you give alms, if you give something to the poor, it will, it will clean up your heart. New Living Translation may have captured it very well when, when it says, so give to the needy what you greedily possess and you will be clean all over. Everything will be clean for you. Open the heart that is full of greed by giving alms. The right kind of outward action has an effect on the heart. Christian businessman now with the Lord, named Fred Smith, had this to say about greed. He says, giving is the only drain plug I know for greed. Giving is the only drain plug I know for greed. Giving is the way to drain greed out of the soul. See, we have a way of, our heart has a way of following where we invest ourselves. Matthew 6, 20, 21. Uh, talks about don't lay up treasure in heaven, and then he goes on to say, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I invest myself into heaven, then my heart goes to heaven. You know, and, uh, one way we experience this, I think, on a fairly regular basis, is that when you invest yourself by giving time to another person, you notice how you begin to care for that other person. You know, let's say here's somebody I don't really have much in common with, but he comes to our church, so I should spend some time with this person. And as you begin to hear what this person is like, as you begin to, you know, to hear the person's fears and the concerns and the interests, even hobbies, <laughs> you begin to say, hey, you know, I can relate to this person. There's something about where we give ourselves that our heart follows. And so that's what's being taught here, I believe. He's saying, give alms. It's like draining the greed out of your heart. Well, the call to us, really, here, is to give up the very thing that we cling so much to. It might be materialist. It might be other thing. Might, we might be so concerned about our reputation or our career or whatever. We have to let go and give ourselves, rather, to the Lord. That will change the heart. Wrong bullseye, focusing on the external. And the second one, very closely related, but you know, he expresses it a little different here in verse 42, missing the main, missing that which is most important. Woe to you Pharisees! You give God a tenth of your mint and your rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect something that's more important. They were in the habit of giving God a tenth of everything, even the smallest of their produce. They are tithing all the garden herbs and the stocks, very scrupulous, and even going beyond what was required. I mentioned my sister Bernice just a few minutes ago. 
I remember her t telling much later, saying that, you know, she was taught in Sunday school that you were supposed to give God 10%, right? So when she was picking berries and eating raspberries and picking berries, she would drop one out of ten on the ground because she should be giving God a tenth of everything. <laughs> tenth of the vegetables. Imagine, though, going into the carrot patch and, and you have a carrot and you're so meticulous as an adult now, so meticulous that I've got to take this into account when I drop my tithe into the offering. They were so exact and meticulous and scrupulous about their tithing, that they were literally tithing from their vegetables. And Jesus says here, that's good as far as it goes. But he says you are neglecting what is more important, which in this text, is, in, in, this path, in this gospel, is justice and love for God. Missing the main thing. Matthew's parallel account is very colorful. He says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And then this very graphic hyperbole, he says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, that's a small insect, but you swallow a camel. Straining out your water, that even a small insect is removed, and yet you're literally, you know, he uses imagination. It's like you're swallowing a whole camel. Missing the main. No sense of proportion. Missing the most important. And what is it? Well, it's essentially the great commandment. Justice towards the neighbor and love towards God. Missing out on that. You know, we, uh, we know in practical everyday life that not everything is equally important, right? You've got to get to work in the morning and you might just leave your house a mess to catch the bus on time. Or if there's a plane, you know, you can't... We know that. There's, some things are more important. But we don't hear that in church a lot. Hey, have a sense of proportion here. Not everything is equally important. Not everything is equally important. Jesus teaches here that there's a hierarchy of values. Not every rule, not every detail is equally important, but love for God and neighbor is on top of the list of values, and it remains there. It's the main thing. Pharisees had selected what they wanted to major on, and they missed the main. They had lost the heart, but they maintained the form. They missed the central thrust of Scripture. And they were preoccupied with the lesser good things in the name of faith. How about us? What can it be? Well, it can be our, it can be our tradition. You know? We've always done it that way. And to change, well, it's, it's compromise. It can be style of music. Oh my goodness, I, I don't think it's as much today, but not that many years ago, they called them the, 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 the worship wars. You know, people, you know, the old timers was, were so sure that God couldn't possibly use the contemporary music. And I think some of the young people, are, you know, they, they, they sort of find it strange that God uses hymns. It can be the church building. Some churches make their building the most sacred of things. I've seen that where it just seems that everything is about being able to 
stay in this building that can be your very carefully defined doctrine. We are Baptists and just a little more faithful to the Scriptures. And therefore, we're better, we're, we're more faithful to the Lord than other groups. Boy, I saw some of that at uh, uh, Banff uh, Pastors Conference, the, ba- the Canadian ba- Baptist Union then, now we're called the Canadian Baptist, Baptist Union and the North American Baptist would share a pastor's conference together in, uh, in Banff. And we had some wonderful speakers. And uh, we had one who was very dynamic, very good communicator. But he expressed that he was pretty careful who he prayed with. And he didn't pray with any pedo-baptists. Those are the Christians that baptize their, the babies that are raised in the faith. And so one of our elderly ladies, in fact, I don't mind mentioning her name, Elizabeth Bell, married to Roy Bell, who was like a dean within our denomination in many ways, she said, does that, does that mean you wouldn't pray with John Stott? And he had to think about that. And he had to process that. Uh, and uh, as it turned out, uh, one of our le- leaders was, uh, just like Billy Graham, was married to Presbyterian. And uh, she ended up crying, you know. I mean, I suppose this Baptist guy, he had, he had become Baptist and she had remained Presbyterian. But I suppose they shouldn't really be praying together. You know, it's ridiculous sometimes where we can be so confident in our... We, we, we need to be confident in our doctrines for internal use. This is who we are. We're Baptists. We're proud of it. We're glad to be Baptists. But that doesn't mean we don't partner with other groups. When it comes to evangelism and different things we can do together. Hierarchy of values. And, uh, and so here... Jesus is saying that to these. He's saying, you guys are, you're tithing your vegetables and yet you're missing out on justice. You're missing out on loving God as your, loving God totally and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so when it comes to the priority, it is the great commandment and the great commission. Right doctrine, even, is for the purpose of right practice. Some people have their doctrine all worked out. But it doesn't mean their life is lined up with God's call. But I wonder, why is it so easy for us to be taken up with externals, you know, as a wrong bullseye, missing the main, And I suggest one of the reasons is that the externals are tangible and measurable. That means when I, when, you know, when I do these things, like I went to church 52 times last year, I read through the Bible uh, last year, I never failed to this, I never failed, I fill in the blank. These things that are tangible and measurable, they give us sort of a good feeling about ourselves, you know. And I'm all in favor of having a list to check off. But we need to be careful that that doesn't become a substitute for really loving the Lord with our heart and our soul. And you see, that kind of thing gives me an occasion to compare myself to the other person. But more serious, I think it can give me the very occasion I need to avoid some things. 
it's a lot easier to note that I'm doing well in praying, that I'm not stealing, that I'm not bearing false witness, than it is to tune in on what God is focusing in on, my envy or my resentment or my anger, my critical attitude, my self-centeredness. And it could be that these externals that distract us or missing the main becomes a way of avoiding what we really want to what we really need to deal with the problem with the Pharisees wasn't that their standards were too high but they were too low they were strict but they were strict about things that didn't really matter one of the things that happened in our household that uh, relates to both the wrong bullseye and missing the main, and also what I anticipate dealing with next week, keeping up appearances, concerned our middle child, Corey. He was almost 18. That's the uh, year, I think, that you, uh, uh, well, you should have some privileges, right, when you're 18. And uh, he, rem he reminded me something that I had forgot, uh, that I had promised that uh, when he turned 18, he could wear an earring. Now, keep in mind, this was way back in 92 when, uh, when boys wearing earrings could be a real issue, right? It was still, I think it had passed its main concern, but it was still a bit of an issue. And, uh, but, you know, a couple years earlier, Corey had wanted this, and I'd said, in a, I'd said to him, well, wait until you're 18. And uh, if you still want to, well, then you may, okay? And I had forgot, but of course he hadn't forgot. And now he was about to cash in on the promise. <laughs> Did it matter? Well, by now he was a pianist on the worship team. And I was a pastor. And of course I was worried about how that would look. But did I really have a choice? Breaking a promise that meant so much to him? And so, without being enthused about it, I, I acquiesced. And uh, do you know something? Sky didn't fall in. In fact, there wasn't one person in the church that ever said anything about it. But later that year, Corey went to Providence Bible College, and he sang in their choir, which, you know, ministered in various churches. And uh, he wasn't the only guy with earrings, but in some, some of the churches, the choir director asked the guys who had an earring to take them out put them in their pocket for reasons of sensitivity to some of the people in this church. And uh, Corey, Corey told me, you know, he understood that, and he was good with that, he was fine with that. And after a couple of years, the fad was over for him. But when I looked back on the incident, I really thought about it, and I was so glad that I had not made an issue out of it. But I thought about what message would I have sent if I had made a big issue of our boy wearing an earrings, an earring, I think I would have sent the message that the external is very important. And that this detail, like tithing, mint, and cumin, very important. And of course I would have communicated to him that I care an awful lot about what people think and that my reputation as a pastor matters more than keeping a promise 
that meant a lot to him. I expect that most of us are not completely free from pharisaic tendencies, which can take many different forms. But the call here for us, I believe, is to become increasingly given to the things that really matter, things of the heart, and not be distracted by making lesser things equally important. I'm sure many of you have been following and many of you probably delighted like, like me of the excellent coverage given by the secular media to Billy Graham the last couple of weeks. Just, just amazing. And uh, Graham, of course, was not a pastor, and of course he would have needed to, to be different if he had been a pastor, but God called him to be a, what shall we say, a Christian leader that represents all of Christendom. And he was criticized on, 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 by many because somehow they felt it was wrong for him to work with people who did not agree with all the details of his, important details of his doctrine. But he made a choice to cooperate with anybody, anywhere where he would be free to proclaim the gospel. I personally am totally convinced that Graham had a much bigger impact because he was willing to focus primarily on things that were at the very heart the Great Commission, and the Great Commandment. The world would have lost so much if he had said, you know, I'm a Southern Baptist, and I'm just going to practice with those who agree with me on the details of our doctrines. But instead, he became a Christian leader, representing Christianity well to the whole world. And it's amazing how the world recognizes it. In this series of Surprised by grace, we have seen many examples where Jesus practiced a certain freedom that the Pharisees did not have. Freedom to eat with whoever. Freedom to pray for whoever. The freedom to accept hospitality and anointing from ever. Free to go home and to eat with Zacchaeus, chief tax gatherer. Pharisees wouldn't have been free to do that. Free to call another tax collector, Matthew, Levi, to follow him and to enjoy the party at his house. Free to accept the anointing of expensive perfume from a, from a prostitute. Pharisees would have had none of those freedoms. But he did. And in each case, you see, he was really practicing the great commandment. Loving God, loving neighbor as myself. And out of that context, able to make a difference in the lives of the many people who just didn't rate. Well, expressions of love. Loving the unlovely granting grace, therefore not neglecting, as it says here in verse 42, justice and the love of God. Jesus is our example. 